Welcome to the New Grace Sermon Podcast. New Grace exists so people experience new life in Christ. We invite you to connect with us on social media, at newgrace.cc on Facebook and Instagram. For more information or to support this ministry financially, visit us at newgrace.cc. God's at work, church. He's at work in a big way. And I'm excited about being here to close out our series. I've enjoyed thoroughly the last two weeks and uh, looking forward to what God's going to do. We're closing out our series called Living Like You're Leaving. I want to go ahead and give you a disclosure. This is going to be like trying to drink water out of a fire hydrant. I'm going to flip this thing on and it's just going to go until it's done. I'm going to move quick. I'm going to set this up with something I want you to keep in mind as we get into some scripture, as we get to looking at some things that you and I would consider the end or end time things. If you have a Bible, Matthew 24. If you don't or you don't have it on your phone, we've got it on the screen, Matthew 24, verse number three. When you're there, everybody say amen. Y'all, it's on the screen. Everybody has to say amen. It's a trick question. When you're there, say amen. amen. Matthew 24, 3. Look at this conversation that Jesus and the disciples have. Verse 3, it starts with a question. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be. Now that's in a reference to uh, verse 1 and 2, so you need to read that on your own time. When shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Let's read the question again. Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Like any hungry or passionate Christian, the disciples were full of questions. Jesus always had answers. Just like for every question you've got, I want to tell you, you have a God and a Savior who's got answers. Somebody help me thank God for that. He's got answers for our questions. The reality is this. Jesus didn't answer his disciples like they always wanted to be answered. He didn't always package and frame the answer in such a way that maybe would have been as clear as what me and you probably would think it should be or what we and you would say or maybe what they wanted to hear, but he always had an answer. And the answer that he gives them to this question in Matthew 24, it is about to lead us into one of the most controversial and talked about biblical passages in the Word of God. They're basically asking him, all right, Lord, when the end comes... What's going to happen? When the end comes, here's another way of saying it. What's going down? And I want to answer that question very carefully. And I want to try to be as clear as I can, but I also want to make sure we're as balanced biblically as possible in answering this question, concluding our series, living like you're leaving, what exactly is going down in regards to the end. So first of all, I want to say this. When you hear somebody refer to the end or the end times, they are referring to a series of prophetic events 
that were described in the Old Testament that run in correlation with New Testament teaching and New Testament revelation. What I want to do is unpack all of these things, starting with how you and I are supposed to approach this. So if you're, if you're wanting to put some main points down, I want, you to, I want you to write this. We need to learn the approach for end-time prophecy. This is not something you can flippantly or haphazardly approach. I wish to God 20 years ago someone would have got up, and I wouldn't have understood the full scope of what they were saying by any means. I would have been getting crumbs from the plate, and that would have been about it. But I would have been able to make much with those crumbs over two decades compared to spending the last decade especially the last eight years, really aggressively searching these things out for myself and trying to come to some conclusions that I thought were clear and biblical. And had somebody told me how to approach these kind of things like this, probably could have saved myself a lot of time and a lot of misunderstanding. So when you're approaching end-time prophecy, two things. Approach it with openness. Everybody say the word open. open. Everybody say the word open. open. You've got to be open when you're approaching end-time biblical context, I have become personally open to God and spiritually open to God and the Word of God in ways that I was always closed off. It led to new revelation, new information. It led to, to, to new belief, and, and, and I've changed my mind about things over the years. Even since New Grace started, I don't even believe the exact same way that I did when New Grace started several years ago. I'm not talking about changing major things that would, would put me in a, a, a classification of heresy or, or unbelief. I just mean I've just changed the way I thought some things were outlined biblically and the way some things happened biblically. And, 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 and God told me to tell you this. When you stick with what you were always told or first taught, in a lot of cases, it can be very unhealthy for you. Because, you know, we, we get this idea, I can't remove away from this thing that I was told. This is how it is. On the other hand, there are going to be times where what you were always taught or first told may be true and may be what you need to stick to. Here's the deal. Jesus said this in John 5, 39. Search the scriptures. Now, right there, I lost half of you because you don't want to do that. You want me to tell you. You want me to make sure your bib's on. You want me to bring the choo-choo of Gerber. And look, the reality is this. Jesus said, look, you got to learn how to use a fork and a knife, and you got to learn how to wipe your face, and you got to learn how to cut your food up, and you gotta, you got to get off the milk and figure out how to start chewing the meat. Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they, the scriptures, are they which testify of me. This really applies to end-time study. So here's a way I want you to approach this. When I say openness, here's what I mean. There is a difference between having an open-hand approach to something and a closed-hand approach. Open-hand means you've got a loose grip on it. I want to say this. There are some things the Bible teaches and the Bible says, and I believe those things, but I have a loose grip on that belief. In other words, it's not something that I think is so major that I'm willing to debate with you or die on a heel over. I just, I believe it, but I have a loose grip and I'm open to it maybe being different than what I was told, taught, or what I think. However, 
There are some things that you need to have a closed grip on. And you don't, you will split hairs over. Was Jesus born of a virgin? Yes. Was he God? Yes. Did he die? Yes. Was he buried? Yes. Did he rise again? Yes. Did he give us his spirit? Yes. Is he coming back? Yeah. Do you see? You see? You gotta have a closed grip on some things, but you gotta learn there are some things, biblically speaking. Is it okay for this? Is it right for this? Do you believe in that? Those things, there's a looser grip on some of those things, and they don't compromise the major pillars of what we say the Bible teaches and tells us. So when you're approaching this stuff we're about to talk about, be open. Secondly, be honest. Be honest in that you're probably not as far along spiritually as you think you are. And you probably don't know all there is to know. And be honest, there's somebody out there that's smarter than you. There's somebody out there that has already done a lot of the legwork. Not saying you don't need to, but I'm saying that I ought to challenge you to do your own. Be honest that you're still growing. Be honest that you haven't arrived. I had to come to a point where I, look, back when I was younger, when I knew everything, I didn't know that there was a still a whole lot of growing for me to do. I didn't understand that a lot of my understanding was hidden and shrouded and veiled. And, and I, I had no idea. I wasn't honest with myself. And look, here's another thing. Be honest with why you want to know this. Be honest with yourself that when you saw our video about living like you're leaving, that you haven't been to church in how long, but now you want to come because you're interested, because COVID-19 scared you. Be honest about why you want to know this stuff now. Do you, do you want to know this stuff or do you want to figure this out so you can sound smart in front of your friends or so you can be the smartest person at the table? Or do you want to hear these things and know these things because it matters to you what God's word says and you want to have a better understanding of what God's word says? And if you're going to commit yourself to the Christian life, you don't want to be just haphazardly, flippantly following something just because some bald dude with a beard got up in a microphone and hollered at you and told you to do it. Do you? It's got to be deeper than that, right? In all honesty, in all honesty, here's what's happening. We are drawing our end time conclusions based on a faith assumption. That was a loaded statement. Did you hear it? We're drawing our end time conclusions based on a faith assumption. Now, that... That's not a bad thing when I say that because you heard the word assumption, so you assumed it was a bad thing. I want you to understand something. Any, any level of understanding, for that matter, any level of belief starts with an assumption. When you assume a position, that is you choosing to decide and take a stand on that particular thing. So it begins with assumption. And, and, and as we're about to see in just a second, a lot of these biblical passages and these end-time events, they get assigned to particular parts of this time frame based many times based on a theological system that was previously adopted. If we're honest, somebody told us this is the way it was, and then every single sermon, every single scripture, every single thought biblically has to then fit into that mold that we were taught this is how it is. Can I submit to you one of the greatest things you'll ever learn is unlearn to relearn. 
That was a mouthful. Did you get that? One of the greatest things you'll ever learn is sometimes you have to unlearn to relearn. So I want us to quickly, I want us to just push pause because this, this leads us into looking at the assumptions of event placement. I, I actually want to take a second in just a minute and I want to look at some of the things we assume scripturally that lead us to our own conclusions. Well, that this, this must be this, and this, this happens here, and, and that means this is going to happen, and this is coming, and this is going down. And guess what? You can't do none of that if you don't let Scripture inform Scripture. You know one of the biggest crimes many people commit in, in Christian immaturity is they try to build a whole theological system on one verse. They play Bible roulette. People do that for their life. They take their Bible and they're like, what is the will of God for my life? And he went out and hanged himself. And in hell, he lift up his eyes. Right? They play Bible roulette. They do the same thing. That same nature also applies to like end time study. People are paying attention now. They're getting nervous. They're asking questions. The, the church is kind of waking up, so to speak, and now everybody's like running to someone that looks like they know what they're talking about, and they're going, what, what is, what's the Bible say about this? Like this stuff is happening over in the Middle East. What does this mean? Israel had a peace treaty in, with Jordan in 1979, and then under Trump's administration there were two in the last five years what, what does that mean? Isn't there something about, like, peace in the Middle East? That, like, in that connect? And people are Googling, and they're searching, and they're YouTubing, and they're asking, and they're curious. And if you're not careful, you're going to miss how to approach this. You, you, you have to look at end-time prophecy the same way you look at the Gospels. How many Gospels are there? How many Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're all writing about the same thing. They all saw it from a different angle. It's like a wreck that happens at a four-way intersection. Everybody saw the wreck, but everybody saw it from a different perspective. So this guy over here may say something that this guy over here doesn't say. And this guy over here is going to say something that this guy says, but he's going to say it in a different way. So when you begin to compare and allow the correlation of writings to align, you begin to see the full mosaic and the thing begins to take shape and it begins to be clearer and all of a sudden these end time ideas, when you use all of the scripture collectively, you begin to realize they all saw the same thing. This guy didn't record this and this guy did, but when they talked about this, they both had the same angle or they had different angles. Do you see those assumptions? They lead us to draw conclusions. Here's what I want you to think about. How is it that Bible scholars all have the same Bible, but they all came to a different conclusion of how it all went down? How is it you can look at a verse and I can look at a verse, and then when we go to talk about it, you're like, yeah, but to me it means blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, yeah, but to me it means blah, 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 blah. Well, that's my interpretation. Well, don't use that word. Don't use that word like that because interpretation, let me, let me explain to you. A, a verse only has one interpretation. It, a verse doesn't mean different things. That's what it means to me. That doesn't matter. <laughs> like, 
it only meant one thing when it was recorded, inspired, and written. Does that, does that make sense? Like, it only has one interpretation. Now, it can have different applications. I can take something out of Ezekiel 37 about the valley, the valley of dead, dry bones, and where it talks about the regathering of Israel. That's a prophetic utterance over the nation of Israel as a collective people, but I can take that and say, just speak to them dead, dry bones, and they'll get up. Bless God, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and God is a God of resurrection. And just like Ezekiel prophesied and spoke over those dead, dry bones, I want to tell you something. If you got something in your life that's died, and it's buried, and the devil's telling you it's over with, and it's gone, and God's done with you, I want to tell you something. It may be dead, but bless God, it ain't done. See, I just did it right there. You didn't even catch what I was doing. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I was giving you an example. I took an interpretive passage and I applied it to you because it helped you with your marriage. It's not dead. It's not done. I helped you with your joy right there. It's talking about Israel getting regathered as a nation. That's not what it, it doesn't mean. It has nothing to do with your marriage. The Spirit of God is so much God. He can take an interpretive passage of Scripture and apply it to right where you are because God is a God of life and he is the God of the living. Do you see that? So when, when you got to be real careful when you start looking at this stuff. you gotta, you got to let Scripture inform Scripture. Here's the deal. We wholeheartedly believe what we assume. We do. That's how it starts. I used to assume, and I used to wholeheartedly believe that a divorced man couldn't preach. I did. I believed that. I could teach it. I could take Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and prove to you that a divorced man can't pastor. I used to believe that all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that they had ceased that, those, that they did not manifest or reveal themselves through the New Testament church body. I had great, I mean, I could preach it. And if you did believe it, I could nail you to the wall. But I got open, I got honest, I changed my mind. I'm not too old to change my mind. I haven't been set in my ways so much that I can't change my mind. Why did that happen? Like, why did I wholeheartedly believe something and then change my mind about it later. Well, I wrote this down. One, I assumed the first preacher teaching me was 100% right. Can I, can I mess with y'all for a second? And it may make, you, you may leave, because I'm, I'm about to take a comfort and a security blanket away from you. No preacher you've ever sat under, wherever will sit under, will be 100% right. He's not infallible, he's a man. He's not perfect. He's a dude. He's going to mess it up. He's going to say something off color. He's going to be stupid every now and then. He's gonna, don't put him on a platform even though he stands on one to speak to you. Are you hearing me? Two, I assumed that I didn't really need to study it myself. I mean, he's pretty convincing. He's got gray hair, wrinkles, a gigantic, like, size 25 class ring that he slams into that pulpit every time he proves a point. He's got fire in one eye and a tear in the other when he preaches on hell. And I can feel God. 18 years of my life, I've never felt God. And I come to this place, and he's preaching out of a King James Bible in a suit and tie. And everybody in there is shouting and clapping and crying. And all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, I feel God. I assume he's right. And he was right about a lot of stuff. I got my roots sitting under that preaching. 
I went to a Bible college and got more roots sitting under preaching. But I realized God left some some ground vacant so I could grow my own roots. The problem is many of us are rooted in something somebody else told us and taught us, and we've never grown our own. You're like a horse in sugar cubes eating out of somebody else's hand. God wants to put it on a plate for you to learn how to feed yourself. My God, our church is about to grow. This kind of stuff is what changes a church. When y'all get this, it will change your life and it will change this church. Four, or three, I assume the scriptures, every verse I ever read accurately supported the system I was being taught. So I would read something and I'd be like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't understand how that messes up what I believe. And so I would twist it and turn it and tweak it to fit into my little system so that I could walk away and go, ha, I feel better about being right. For I assumed I was right. And my assumption, that was the position I took. And it was the belief I believed. And guess what? Everybody in the room does this. We all do this. And I'm not saying that that's a negative thing, but what I am telling you is that is how your journey of faith begins. God begins to reveal something to you and it may be shrouded and hidden and it may seem cryptic and you may have to decode it and discern it. But I want to tell you when you search the scripture and you begin to study to show yourself approved unto God, the Bible teaches and tells us that God begins to open our understanding and give us enlightenment and his word becomes a lamp to our feet and a light to our path and we begin to, here it is, grow. It's not about being right. It's not about being the smartest. It's about you growing. This whole thing is about you growing because when you're growing, it changes the way you live. So when we read, are y'all still with me? That was the setup. You ready? We're about to go down and pick a few seashells off the ocean floor. I'm, I'm serious. Are you ready? Some, some of y'all brought swimmies. You're not going to go with me. I'll come up for air and tell you where we're at, tell you what I'm finding. When you read and teach about end time prophecy and end time of, when you read and teach about what's going down in the end, it has to be done with Scripture supporting and informing Scripture. Because the moment you draw an assumption and a conclusion and you believe a thing, it puts you down a certain path. If you, be, if you come to this assumption and this conclusion, it puts you down a different path. I'm about to show you an example. If you say, this is what I believe, well, that's going to set you this way. Well, this is what I believe about that. Well, it's going to set you that way. One of the most sought after verses of interpretation. One of the focal points of all this, what's going down, is in Daniel 9. Y'all want to look at it? Because I had people looking at me at 9.30 like, Daniel 9. Daniel receives a prophetic message from the angel Gabriel and it says this 
about the Jewish people. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. A week in the Hebrew here is a set of seven years. It is a set of seven years. Seventy sets of seven years. Anybody do the math on that? How many years is that? 490. 490 years are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. What's going to happen in those 490 years? To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. I know, I know, we're trying to figure out what that means. Just stay with me. I don't want you to miss where I'm going. He says in verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, from the time there is a decree to rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, that's going to be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. That's 69 weeks. 483 years from the time there's a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, 483 years later, there's a Messiah being recognized. Notice what he says. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. And after three score and two weeks, after, listen to this, after the 69 weeks, the Messiah is cut off, ceases, but not for himself. There's a change of thought here. And the people, now we're enter a different character. The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and the end thereof shall be with a flood or shall come in like a flood is another way to read that. And unto the end of the war, desolations are determined. Who is this character that has entered the scene? And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. For a period of seven years, he's entered into a covenant with many for seven years. And in the midst of the week, at three and a half years, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined, something has already been determined about this individual, shall be poured Upon the desolate. Don't worry. I'm going to try to summarize. Apparently there is a prophecy of 70 weeks, that being 490 years, that has been decreed upon the Jewish people and the holy city of Jerusalem. This 70-week period is, is meant to accomplish the things we see in verse 24. Verses 25 through 27 tell us what events will actually take place during the 490-year period. Are you with me so far? As we said last week, there are many people that think this 70th week or this seven-year period still needs to happen. Now, why would, why would we draw those conclusions? It's, it's interesting how he broke it up. It's like there's, there's 69 and then there's this one week. And he, and he makes it sound like there's this one week that still has to happen. Here's something interesting. He said that from the time there was a decree to rebuild Jerusalem, 
483 years later, the Messiah will be recognized. A man named Sir Robert Anderson, I believe he's from London, he actually did, using the Jewish calendar, the math 360 days a year, according to the Jewish calendar. From the time that the decree, now there's four ideas as to when this decree happened, but he says that when Nehemiah received his decree to rebuild Jerusalem, he left that captivity and exile, went to Jerusalem. He said from the month Nisan, N-I-S-A-N, the first day of the month Nisan, using the Jewish calendar, 360 days a year for 483 years, he said that if you do the math to the day, it comes down to the 10th day in the month of Nisan, in the very year, month, and day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey and they hailed him as Messiah. And we know that within a matter of days, he was cut off, crucified, murdered, and buried. It's funny that those things led up 69 weeks, just like we're told. Yet, where is the last week? Where's the other seven years? It's like some period of time was created. And the seven-year period hasn't happened yet. It's also interesting that the 69 and the 1 were actually divided in the text. And there's an assumption that the seven-year period is still needing to happen. It's interesting that in Matthew 24... In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus references certain things that are implied in this very prophecy that they still need to happen. Now, on the other hand, as I said last week, plenty of people that don't believe there's another seven years that has to happen, not according to this prophecy. In fact, they can line it up scripturally and tell you it's already happened. Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 A.D., and, and, and I think it was 120-something, 100-something B.C., a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes sacrificed a pig in the Jewish temple, and they called it the abomination of desolation. It's funny, they, we call him Antichrist. This guy's name was Antiochus Epiphanes, and people make a correlation and say the book of Revelation, everything Daniel said, it's already happened. The only thing left to happen is Jesus come back and either take us into a kingdom or take us into eternity. Did you, did you see what I just did there? If you say, now this feels like Sunday school, don't it? If you say there's seven years, it puts you on a path that really brings into focus some things that have to happen. If you say, I think it's already happened, it takes you a completely different route. Do, do you see the power of what we assume Scripturally, and here's the deal, any article, any blog, any website, any video, here we go, any preacher that pitches any system, they all sound so good. 
like this guy over here lays it out and you're going, God, that makes sense. And then this person lays it out over here and you're going, God, that makes sense. I don't know which one it is. And then here comes some joker from out of nowhere, hits you with something else and you're going, now I'm really confused. <laughs> right? The goal is not frustration, confusion, or aggravation. The goal is growth. You know something I found personally? You want me to tell you what I found? If the view I have never gets challenged by another view, I don't have a very good understanding of my view. Because the more I begin to study different views, the better it's going to make my view. And guess what? If the Holy Spirit uses another view and perspective to change my mind, and I realize that my view now looks like a piece of Swiss cheese, somebody talk to me. It's a win-win. Either I get stronger in what I say I believe or God grows me and stretches me. Either you get stronger or you get stretched. Do you see that? So I want to take some time and I want to look at some assumptions that lead to conclusions that challenge our faith. And I believe what I'm about to show you some of you walked in thinking about rent and mortgages and car payments and kids and colleges and braces and, oh God, I just described us, didn't I? <laughs> you walk in here thinking about this for your life and this part of your relationships and your job and, this, and you're caught up in your own little world and what I want to do for a second is use this stuff to encourage and inspire you but also to make you realize how small you are and how big God is. And I, I, got, I got a visual, and they're going to help me with this visual. They're going to bring it up right now, and I want to give you some things that I want you to see in regards to the end or the end times. Uh, JJ, can you put this on the floor for me? I almost dropped it at 930, holding it with the microphone. Now, y'all stop cheating. Don't even look at them. Act like you don't see them, because I, I need you to listen to me before you look at that. All right? Be very careful. That thing's glued together with Gorilla Glue. I hope that gorilla's got a closed hand, not an open hand. Let, let me, let, no, don't miss this, because if you miss what I'm about to say right now, and you're looking at that, you're, 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 you're off. I personally believe that there are strong support, there's strong support that a seven-year period still has to happen. I just, I can't get away from it. I've tried, I tried to talk myself out of it. And, and I really, I've really tried to get away from the seven-year thing not needing to happen. But no matter which way I look at it, when, when, you take, when you take, hey, when you take Isaiah and Daniel and Joel and Matthew 24 and First and Second Thessalonians and Revelation, you can't, you're, you're like, I'm going to read the book of Revelation. That's not enough. You're looking at it from one angle. You're going to be more confused. You can't, you can't do that. When you look at the complete mosaic of scriptural support, for me, it's hard to get away from seven years. Now, let me throw this hook. Are you ready? I am not going to spend three hours talking through this. I'll leave it here, take a picture of it, look at it later. It's a bad visual in that I know you can't see that very well, but it's all I'm working with, all right? This is, this is Pastor Derek last-minute stuff, dragging Ashley in for the work, all right? But here's what I want you to hear. I want you to hear this. I, I, truly, I truly believe that the Scripture teaches us there is a period of time to come, 
in which God is going to do things in this world that will regather the nation of Israel back to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And I believe this time period is what God's going to use to do that. Now, my hope is that, one, God leads me to do this. Two, you want to be a part of it. I would love to take the idea of this and all the other views and do six or eight weeks called Sunday Night Prophecy and get all kind of visuals and take my time because I'm throwing out a giant net to everybody and I'm trying right now to reach somebody who's never heard the gospel and somebody who's been pastoring for 20 or 30, 40 years. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to reach everybody right now. What I want to do is take a Sunday night or Sunday nights and I want to sit there and give you every view possible and talk through what I personally believe in detail, if God will let me do that. But God ain't gonna let me do that if y'all don't wanna hear it. Maybe this will whet your appetite. So let's, let's, let's look at this seven-year period to see what's going down, if we can. We're somewhere on this side of the seven years. I think there's a lot of things happening in the world that are setting the, setting the table, so to speak, for these end-time events and the home stretch of what's to come. But then again, there have been many things over the last 100 years that have set in array things that could happen. So I don't know how far or near this is. What I do believe is I believe God is preparing his church regardless of how soon or how later this may be. The goal here is we're ready because he's coming. It appears there's a, t a, a seven-year period that begins at the moment this Antichrist figure who is, who is unknown, he's flying under the radar. He, he doesn't have the title of Antichrist. Nobody knows he's the Antichrist, but he signs this peace treaty with Israel. And, and it appears that one of, one of the contingencies in this peace treaty is that the Jewish people can now operate with sacrificial systems in their new third temple. Now, right there, if you're thinking of Solomon's temple, you're thinking they better start construction way back here to be ready for right there. How are they going to erect that thing in a matter of weeks or days? There is nothing that says it has to be a temple like that of Solomon. All we know is there is some kind of dwelling where the Jewish people have erected this ability to sacrifice animals again, starting up their, Ju their Judaistic system. This Antichrist figure has made that possible, and he begins to rise to power. Who he is or where he comes from right now, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. But this figure begins to rise to power. One of the things I want you to know is in heaven, there are things that are actually happening in the book of Revelation. Those things in heaven transcend over into this world, and those things that are released in heaven happen on this earth. Revelation tells us that Jesus takes a scroll. I believe it's Revelation 5. This scroll is, 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 is an analogy or it is, a, it is a figurative way of saying God is about to roll out a series or set of judgment. This, this scroll is sealed with seven seals. And every time a seal is opened, something is released on this planet during this time. The first one being the rise of an antichrist. There's wars and rumors of wars. There's famine in the land. And there's all kind of different ideas on three of these things happen on this side, 
Three of them happen, or uh, four of them happen on this side. There's all kind of different ideas. Four of them happen, three. Regardless of how you look at that, it's obvious that there are things happening in heaven that begin to take place on earth. Does that make sense? This is the halfway point. Now, I know you're looking at this thinking this is the halfway point, but there's a lot that unfolds on earth after the halfway point, and, and I want to make sure that I'm doing justice to those events. This man has risen to power. At the three-and-a-half-year mark, Daniel says this, Jesus testifies of this in Matthew 24, and Paul references this in 2 Thessalonians. This figure who has risen to power is going to go into this Jewish temple. He is going to break the peace treaty. He will no longer allow them to make sacrifices, and he is going to sit as the prophets say, upon the throne and make the temple desolate with his abomination. He will declare himself to be the Messiah, to be God. He will initiate something called the mark of the beast. Revelation refers to him as the beast. And his mark in the Bible is 666. Now, whether that's a microchip in your right hand and your forehead or a skin tattoo on your right hand or in your forehead, I don't know. I don't know what systems or measures will be employed, but you can't buy, you can't sell, you can't make merchandise. Forget Amazon orders. Forget Instacart deliveries. Forget pumping gas. Forget your groceries. Forget paying online. Ain't nothing happen unless you have this mark. This mark is basically your declaration to say, this is God and we worship him. COVID-19 proved to us it doesn't take long for a system to change just like that. And so things begin to accelerate during this man's rise. He's revealed here at the halfway mark. Now, there's no, I don't think there's a need for an ark of the covenant in the temple. I think there's implications that there is an actual seat, a throne that the Messiah is going to sit on. When this man desolates the temple and declares himself to be God, he more than likely is sitting in that sacred holy place. This is the halfway point. Things begin to dramatically accelerate as this man reigns, whether it's demographically or globally. My Bible teaches me the world. Now, whether that was an interpretation of the writers at that time talking about the known world or if it's talking about the entire world as of right now. Is this going to be one of them things, me and you are sitting there sipping on Starbucks, watching news, going, I can't believe that's happening over there, or is this happening over here? I never thought about that until actually recently. I don't know. At this point, we enter into something that Jesus called in Matthew 24, the great tribulation. Now, here's what's interesting. Most people, in fact, I was taught this, here, all the right here, is called the tribulation. The reason we call it that is because on the front end of what Jesus said, before he comes up and declares himself to be God, there's tribulation in those days. Then Jesus said, after that, there's great tribulation, such as the world has never seen. The amount of martyrs and murders that will take place, people being executed for their faith, their heads being cut off, people dying, persecution at an all-time high, like of which the world has never seen or never known. 
as these seals are being released, there is a sixth seal being released, and something interesting happens on the landscape of this seven-year period. Jesus says that there will be an abomination of desolation by this Antichrist figure. He says there will be great tribulation. And then he says, after those days, the sun will go dark, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will cease to shine. And then it says they shall look into the, into the sky and see the sign of the Son of Man returning, and the nations will mourn, and he will gather from the four winds the elect. Let me stop right there. I was always told that after this happened, that this happened, that that is when Jesus returns to earth. And I was always told and taught, and I'm not saying that I don't believe this, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But the main thing that I've always thought about and been concerned about is this. Where Jesus returns, what we talked about in week one, the dead are raised and those that are alive and remain are caught up and meet him in the air. I've always been persuaded this happens right here. Always. That what you and I see in this tribulational period, Jesus is going to come and take his church out of here. And we will miss every ounce of this. Here's something interesting. Here's how we say this. Jesus is going to come back and take us out of here before it gets bad. Let me push pause right there. Is there a difference now, see, right here, this is going to send you in two different directions. I'm just going to throw it out there for you. Is there a difference in persecution and the wrath of God? No, 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 listen to me. Day of the Lord. I got about 20 verses right there that I want to read to you that talk about the day of the Lord. It's not a 24-hour period. It is a time frame in which God is pouring out his wrath and vengeance upon this earth. I was always taught and always thought this was the entire seven years. Always thought that. But you know, when I, over the years as I've been studying, I saw something I've never seen before. Jesus says, abomination of desolation is going to happen. There's a great tribulation, people getting murdered. And those are the people that, I was always taught, those are the people that come to faith after we leave here. Because we're gone, right? We're up in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to come back down there and reign with Jesus. There's this great tribulational period, and then there's these cosmic disturbances. And Jesus says that after you see great tribulation, you see these cosmic disturbances in the atmosphere, and then he's coming. Joel chapter 2 says that in that day you shall see the sun turn dark, the moon cease to shine, and the stars fall from the sky before that great day of the Lord. So if that ushers in this, 
how could all this be that? Here is the distinction. I have a Bible that tells me I'm saved from the wrath of God. The judgment, justice, and indignation of Almighty God. I am delivered from it. Here's my thought. Does the wrath start there or there? Because, oh, Bible Belt, American flag-loving Derek Anglin. Zaxby's eating Starbucks sipping Derek Anglin. Really wants this to happen right here. But how fitting is it, and I'm not saying it doesn't, but isn't it interesting that privileged, cuddled, cushioned America would say he's going to come back before we get persecuted. Tell somebody in China that. Tell the, the wives and the children of the men who were executed by those ISIS soldiers in 2015 with their heads cut off for their Christian faith. Tell them Jesus is coming back to get... Jesus is coming back to get us before it gets bad. I'm not saying, I, I can make a good case on how these things are the wrath of God. It's just interesting that Revelation 6, along with other things, talk about these people being martyred or crying out to God to bring his wrath and vengeance. And then in chapter 7, you have this huge host of people before the throne of God worshiping him. And the Bible says, these are they which came out of great tribulation and their robes are white and they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. I don't know if that's tribulation saints or us. I'm just throwing that out there for you to chew on. You're like, dude, you are really taking me down a rabbit hole. We know the wrath of God begins to unfold in these seven trumpets. And I'm talking, there's stuff right now, listen to me, listen to me, you can't wrap your mind around what's coming to this planet. We are so in a bubble. We, we, are, we, are, we, are, so, we are so mistaken in how we live our life. A third of the veget or a, a, a fraction of the vegetation gone. Fresh water turned to blood. Salt water turned to blood. I, I, I don't I don't know if 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 the writer I don't know if John was being figurative. God, I hope he was. I hope he was. I don't think I'm gonna be here when this happens because this is part of wrath. I I am not gonna be here when this happens. I hope you're not. But he says there is an angel that goes down with a key to the bottomless pit, and he unlocks that pit, and these creatures crawl out of this thing, the size of horses with some kind of ability to sting humanity and torment humanity for five months during this hellacious period. And you can't die. You have, the, you have the inability for this five-month period to die. And these things are tormenting and torturing humanity. Ladies and gentlemen, you are out of your mind if you think, I'm going to go to hell and throw a party. Hell's coming to you with the party. God is going to settle up the score with the nations, with humanity that spit in the face of his son, ridiculed the gospel, counted the word of God as unfit, and marked the Lord Jesus Christ as nothing but a man, a historical figure, or just make-believe. I want to tell you, God is mad, and he is angry. If you assume the path of a seven-year period, there are dramatic things happening in heaven that will happen to this earth. 
I don't know if it's Moses and Elijah. I don't know if it's Enoch and Elijah that are the two witnesses. I don't know if they remain unnamed, and we don't ever know their name. But they are pronouncing the judgment of God upon humanity. And the day of the Lord, this time frame where God is emptying out his wrath on this planet. Look, I just can't. Look, I really wanted to move this way down there and put an arrow on it. But I can't because Joel says this happens after that. And Jesus says this happens after that. And I was always taught that the rapture happens. And that is what ushers in the day of the Lord. Like, that's how it happens. He's gone, wrath comes. Or he, he comes, we're gone, wrath comes. So, is wrath right there? Is wrath right there? Here's a takeaway I don't want you to miss. I don't want you to miss this. Because if you look at this and you get on a rabbit hole and you get stuck, you get scared. I gotta ask you a question. If you are his... He is yours. What do you have to fear? No, no, I'm, I, want you to, I want you to see this. I want you to see this. You say, but Pastor Derek, what if we really don't get raptured out of here until after the reign of the Antichrist and the great truth? Like, what, what if that's happening in America? What if we're here? Do you have a faith worth dying for? There's a whole lot more to it when you start seeing this and you hear it ring in your ear. Take up your cross and follow me. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. Here's my takeaway. Here's my takeaway. You ready? I'm going to land a plane. Are you all ready? You're like, God, please just get out of the way so we can go home. I'm scared. (laughs) He's going to come back. Let me give you a scenario real quick. I'll, I'll go ahead and throw this out there as a teaser. We're raptured, we go to heaven. We return with Christ to reign with Christ. He defeats, I think he comes before the battle of Armageddon, and I think he assumes lordship in Jerusalem. And when the armies come against him in Jerusalem, he wipes them out, wipes them out. The end of the seven years, Israel repents nationally. They regather back in Israel, in the the country of Israel. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. We enter a you get over there. We enter a 1,000-year physical, literal kingdom with Christ, and we enter into eternity. We go through this tribulational period. We get raptured before the wrath of God is expelled upon this planet. We return shortly with Christ to reign on the planet. Some people believe, and rightfully so, that when he, nothing, none of this happens. We're here the whole time. We go through the wrath of God. And that when he returns, we meet him in the air, get our glorified bodies, do a U-turn, come right back down here and reign with him. Remember what I told you at the beginning? Whatever assumption you take and build your belief on it, it's gonna put you down a path. You say, I don't believe there's seven years. You got the best case scenario, bro. It means he comes back and we have a kingdom. I don't believe there's a kingdom. <laughs> It's even better. (laughs) It's even better. Here's something. I wish I would have said this at 930. I didn't. 
I'm going to spend my time studying this diligently. You're not going to hear a pastor be this honest. Because most guys are going to get up and tell you, bona fide, this is what I believe, this is how it is. You better get with it. I'm going to tell you right now. I don't know. I don't know, but I'm going to tell you what. Me and my house, my kids and my grandkids, I'm going to figure out what I believe about this. And it's going to change the way I live. Because I'm either going to teach my kids and this church to live like you're leaving an escape or live like you're leaving to endure. I can't get away from the seven years happening, man. I can't do it. I can't get away from the wrath of God that is coming to this planet. I can't get you say, I don't believe the seven years is happening, man. There ain't no wrath. There's one car I didn't put on here. Right here. There's something called the white throne judgment of God where every unbelieving lost soul will stand before God before being cast into the lake of fire with the devil and the false prophet and the beast. And that is where you will give an account of your unbelief. And every deed, every thought, every look, every idea, every decision, every act of your life, you will give an account of it. You say, that's going to take a lot of time. God's got eternity. (laughs) Here's what I know. Wrath is coming. Whether it's end time or eternal, wrath is coming. But you know what else I know? So is my Jesus. I know that he's coming. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to submit to you hell or high water. No matter what's going down, I've got a Bible promise. There is coming a day where you and I are going up. You say, I can't wait to see him. I say amen. What a day that'll be when my Jesus, I shall see. Somebody help me. Give him praise. If you know he's coming. Yeah, he is. Come on, JJ, help me close. You say, I can't wait till I get to heaven. I'm sick of this old world. It's troublesome. This old body's giving me trouble. People are stupid. Life is hard. The world is cruel. Somebody say amen. There's all kind of songs. And at best, most of them are pretty silly in nature, you know. When I get to heaven, I'm going to see St. Peter standing at the pearly gate. Like he's some kind of bouncer, you know, checking IDs. Sorry, you're not on the list. That part makes sense. When I get to heaven, I'm going to go see John. When I get to heaven, I'm going to talk to Paul. When I get to heaven, I'm going to find King David. I'm going to go find Noah. When I get to heaven, I'm going to see my, 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 my kids, or I'm going to see my mom and dad. I'm going to see my grandparents. I'm going to see. Let me tell you something. When you get to heaven, those people might be on your list, but they won't be at the top of it. When you get to heaven and it hits you that you made it there by God's amazing, sovereign, powerful grace, that the only reason you're there is because Jesus delivered and saved you from the wrath to come. He doesn't guarantee me a deliverance from suffering. He doesn't guarantee me a deliverance from persecution. He doesn't guarantee me a deliverance from death. But ladies and gentlemen, may I remind you this morning, he guarantees me as his son, as his child. Can I tell you, he guarantees and he promises 
darkness that will never see one ounce of his wrath. None of the judgment. None of the punishment that we will be saved. Saved from wrath. When, you, when it hits you how big of a deal this is. Oh my goodness. When it hits you that all of this is going to happen and culminate to an end time judgment and you get delivered from that judgment because of Jesus, it ought to put a whole new meaning to the word saved. We use that word so out of place. I'm saved. From what? I don't know. I'm just saved. You wonder why I worship the way I do and I testify the way I do and I praise him and I preach the way I do. You wonder why I act the way I do because saved has taken on a whole other meaning to me. When I realize and I look at what I was saved from and I realize that God is smiling upon my life with grace, ladies and gentlemen, that'll make you take the word saved and you'll be forever grateful and forever glad that when God saves somebody, he saves them for good. Is there anybody in this room that is saved? Are you saved and glad of it? Are you glad there's coming a day where death can't hold you? The grave can't stop you. Sin can't curse you. My God, somebody better praise him. I dare you to let it loose. I dare you to rejoice. Bless his name. There's coming a day.